The scriptures often use very simple things to illustrate profound truths. Lilies and vines and birds and mountains and just everyday items are used to teach us important lessons. This will be the case this morning. We're going to look at something very simple and uh, uh, actually very common household items. And I just brought them along here, kind of seal it in our minds. Sometimes uh, visual helps. This is what I'm going to be talking about this morning. It should be pretty evident. The title of this message is Two Cups. Two Cups. As we'll see today, cups are used in the Bible as a symbol of God's dealings in our lives. What he brings our way. Sometimes God's cup for us speaks of adversity. At other times, his cup involves prosperity. And uh, just as two examples of this, uh, in Psalm 11, verse 6, Psalm 11, verse 6, Upon the wicked he will rain snares, fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. So there's one aspect of the type of cup God might give. Fire and brimstone, burning wind, will be the portion of their cup. But if you look over to uh, Psalm 16, verses 5 and 6, uh, very opposite description here. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. Thou dost support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. So a very big contrast between fire and brimstone and burning wind and a heritage that's beautiful to me when the Lord is the portion, our portion and my cup. So the cups mentioned here signify what God gives us. You might say our cup is what he has for us, what he has in store, the <clears throat> kindness or severity of God, blessing or cursing. So under these broad categories, you have the scriptures that speak of the cup of God's fury or his anger. Uh, for instance, Isaiah 51:17 speaks of the cup of his wrath. Revelation 14:10 speaks of the cup of the wine of the fierce wrath of God. So uh, that's one side of the spectrum. And I think, generally speaking, when we're thinking about the cup, at least in biblical times, it had to do with a wine cup. That was a common drink. And it's often used as an example. Another scripture on this would be Psalm um, 75 Verse 8, for a cup is in the hand of the Lord, and the wine foams. It is well mixed, and he pours out of this 
surely all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down its dregs. So obviously a wine cup there, speaking of the wrath of God. Surely the wicked of the earth must drain, drain and drink down its dregs. On the other hand, there are many scriptures that use the cup as a way of speaking of the good things that God has for his people. Psalm 116, verse 13, speaks of the cup of salvation. Jeremiah 16, 7, speaks of the cup of consolation, his cup of consolation. 1 Corinthians 10, 16, speaks of the cup of blessing. So, two different types of cup here, speaking of God's, what God has in store for people. The basic message of the Bible, the good news is that though we deserve the cup of God's fierce wrath because of our sin, Christ drank that cup right there on the cross. He was drinking that cup of the fierce wrath of God. And for those who would put their trust in Him, we have now a cup of salvation. He took the terrible cup for His people and gave them the, the cup of salvation and blessing. When we talk about being saved, generally we think of being saved from sin and self and sorrow. And that's true. But the Bible puts the emphasis primarily on being saved from the wrath of God. Saved from the wrath of God. When we speak of the, the wrath of God, we just realize that God really only hates one thing, and that's sin. But He hates it with a perfect hatred. He loves righteousness and hates iniquity. It's God's extreme displeasure with sin is what the wrath of God is all about. Um, I read this morning, I, just, I was thinking on this subject and looked up some thoughts related to the wrath of God, and one person said, just think of what God would be like if he didn't hate sin. He would not be just. He would not be holy. He would not be righteous. You can't love righteousness without hating iniquity. They go together. So, the point is, is that the primary emphasis when we talk about being saved is being saved from the wrath of God. Saved from the wrath of God. And that comes because of the love He's shown us in Christ. Uh, and we'll see that more this morning because what you see on the cross is both the greatest demonstration of the wrath of God and the greatest demonstration of the love of God right in one that one event. So let's look at some verses that speak of these cups in relationship to Christ himself. So if you would turn, please, to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. And verse 22 we'll begin with. This is a discussion he had with his disciples related to who could sit on his right and left hand. And Jesus said, verse 22, But Jesus answered and said, You do not know what you are asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? And they said to him, We are able. Of course, they didn't know what they were saying, but uh, they thought they could. He said to them, My cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and left hand, this is not mine to give, but it is for those 
for whom it has been prepared by my Father. So he's talking about a cup here, a cup. And if you see, if you skip over to 26, chapter 26, verse 38, you learn more about this. Chapter 26, verse 38. Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and watch and keep watch with me. Now this is in the garden of Gethsemane. Keep watch with me. And verse 39, And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as thou wilt. Then as you skip to verse 42, he went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, thy will be done. So there was a cup that he had to drink there, and he was battling through this, thinking about what was ahead there on the cross. Also, if you look into John uh, 18, verse 11, tells us, Christ told Peter, who was trying to defend him there in this in the time there in the garden from the soldiers that had come to take him away, he said to Peter, Put the sword into the sheath, the cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? So again, this imagery of, of the cup. When we read these <clears throat> verses, we normally think of the excruciating pain and agony of crucifixion. And it is true that the cup the Father gave him included terrible physical suffering. Uh, But much more was included in this cup than just physical suffering and death. What Christ experienced was the pouring out of God's cup of fury, the cup of his fierce wrath against sin. And Christ drank that cup completely there on the cross. He drank it down to the last drop. We see the reality of these two cups, these two examples that we've looked at here. We, we see that Christ was offered two different drinks when he was at the time of the crucifixion. One of these was offered just prior to when he was crucified, and the other was offered at the end of the time there on the cross. So let's, let's look at these. Uh, Matthew 27, 33. Matthew 27, 33. And when they had come to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they gave him wine to drink mingled with gall, and after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots. The point is, is they offered him this drink, this wine mixed with gall, just prior to the crucifixion. He would not take that drink. 
But after five or six hours on the cross, he was offered another drink, which he did take. Uh, if you look down to verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there, when they heard it, began saying, This man is calling for Elijah. And immediately one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. So, you have a, a drink that Christ takes here. Um, the question then arises, why did he refuse the first drink and take the second one? The one was given before, right before he was crucified, the one given right towards the end of the time. And I think, I think that uh, if you read the commentaries on this, most commentators note that there is a distinction between what was offered at the beginning of the crucifixion and was, what was offered towards the end. The first was wine mingled with gall, or myrrh. The second was simply a soured wine, a vinegar-like drink that the soldiers often used. The first was somewhat of a sedative, a sort of drugged wine to stupefy the victim who was being crucified. You know, it says in, in Proverbs 31, Give strong drink to him who is perishing. And this was not just a strong, strong drink that was offered Christ there at the beginning of the time. It actually had this gall in it, which, which acted as a sedative. And um, it was probably not given to him out of pity. But in order to make it easier for the so soldiers to crucify the person that they were dealing with, um, the victim would often struggle violently. Uh, and when this was taking place, being nailed to the cross. Now, Christ would not have done that because he was laying down his life willingly, voluntarily laying down, down his life, but the soldiers didn't know that. They didn't know how he would react. So when Christ tasted this first drink, he would not drink it. Most commentators believe that this was because he realized that such a drug would incapacitate him for carrying the very burden of suffering which he came to the cross for. You know, in the Old Testament, the priests was, they were forbidden to drink strong drink in the tent of meeting when they were going in offering the sacrifices and things. Their minds had to be unclouded during the sacrifice and service in the temple. They could drink wine at other times, but not then. Well, here was our high priest offering the greatest sacrifice. And he realized his mind must be clear. Christ resolutely determined to suffer with his senses fully alert in order to accomplish the full salvation of his people. To do that, there could be no lessening of the pain. He had to, to be totally alert 
totally attentive to what was going on, totally sensitive. In other words, he did not drink this wine mixed with gall so that he could drink to the last the drop, to the last drop, the cup of suffering that God had for sin. He was actively and deliberately taking upon himself all that God's hatred of sin would pour upon him. So I think there's two aspects here. There is a cognitive aspect. He knew, he knew his mind needed to, be, needed to be alert. And he had to be able to interact with what was going on at the time. Uh, interact with the people. Interact with what was said. So his mind had to be fully engaged. If you think of the seven last words of Christ, seven last sayings of Christ on the cross, there's been many books written on this. But just think how important it was for him to be able to be uh, mindful of what he should say there on the cross. He wasn't just a passive uh, sufferer here. He was active in what was going on. So if you think of these things, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Think of how important it was for him to be able to utter those words. Or uh, to the thief there on the cross, this day you will be with me in paradise. If he would have been stupefied, he wouldn't have been able to interact with that, that uh, thief. Uh, interacting with his mom and the disciple John, woman, behold your son, taking care of his mom there in the last minutes of his life. Um, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Quoting Psalm uh, 22. Think how much of insight we get into the what was going on on the cross just by what he uttered right there. I mean, this is so important to understand those, those words. All of these you could, and there have been millions, <laughs> thousands of sermons on each one of these sayings that Christ gave there from the cross. I thirst. We'll be looking at that in a moment. It is finished. And then lastly, Father, into thy hands. <clears throat> into your hands I commit my spirit. So, the cognitive aspect of what he was doing. One writer put it this way, Calvary presents a spectacle such as has never been seen before and will never be seen again. For Jesus did not suffer and die passively as one helplessly submitting to the inevitable, but actively as one keeping a schedule or as one fulfilling a purpose. <coughs> Had we been able to, to look into within his soul we would have witnessed the most colossal struggle that the universe has ever known. Think about that. The most colossal struggle that the universe has ever known was taking place in Christ's soul right at this time there on the cross. Far from being the passive sufferer that he appeared to those witnessing the crucifixion, he was upholding the pillars of the moral universe by rendering full satisfaction to divine justice. For as the sinner's substitute, and in his stead, Jesus stood before the awful tribunal of God, before the judge who abhors sin and burns against it with inexpressible indignation. Christ knew he had to take upon himself the dark weight of sin and the deep wrath of God, which came upon him because of the guilt of millions upon millions of sins that had been committed down through the centuries. This he would not let any drugged wine distort or diminish or lessen. So consequently, he would not take that first drink that was offered him. 
Another, another commentator sums up his refusal to take that drink this way. By that act, he was saying, I must feel the anguish and pain, and above all, must drink and taste every bitter drop of the cup of Jehovah's wrath, and must know what I'm doing and what I'm drinking. I must take it upon myself and feel it to the utmost. There's no other way that atonement can be made for the sins of my people. He that's why he refused that cup. Now he did later take that second drink. In fact, he called out for it. He said, I thirst. I thirst. Tremendous uh, cry from the cross. Uh, speak on that for many days. So let's turn to John 19. John 19. And verse 28, 19, verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, in order that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I am thirsty. And a jar of sour wine was standing there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it to his mouth. When therefore Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. We're told in this passage that he did take this second drink in order that the scriptures might be fulfilled. This is most likely referring to two Messianic scriptures from the Psalms. <clears throat> By Messianic, of course, I mean that they were Psalms that were directly related to Christ being the Messiah. <clears throat> Prophecies related to the Messiah, what would happen with the Messiah. The first is Psalm 22, which you might remember is the one he quoted earlier when he said, My God, my God. Why hast thou forsaken me? That's the way that psalm starts and Christ quotes it. So it's obviously a messianic psalm. But in verse 15 of Psalm 22, we're told, My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. In other words, he was so thirsty, you can imagine after hours on the cross there in the sun, um, how thirst must have overwhelmed him. And so he says, I thirst. This is a real cry for something to, to uh, be given to him. That's the first possible psalm, but I think more likely, and the one that's more likely, the one referred to here as fulfilling the scriptures, is Psalm 69, which is also clearly a messianic psalm. And verse, you can read through it some sometime. There's a lot of verses that apply to what was happening here on the cross, but we'll zero, on, zero in on verse 20 and 21, where it says, Reproach has broken my heart, and I am so sick. I looked for sympathy, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They also gave me gall for my food, 
and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Uh, it says vinegar, but that was the soured wine. It was uh, a drink at, at that time. That, uh, Like I said, at the time of the crucifixion, the, the soldiers probably had it there because it was something that they, they would drink. So they gave, for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. <clears throat> so with that second drink, Christ knew that the Old Testament prophecy was fulfilled, and more importantly, that the full penalty of sin was now almost paid when they gave him that drink. See, Christ was able to go back into the Psalms and in the Old Testament and see himself there over and over. He understood a lot of what was going to happen to him just by reading the Old Testament. Well, all was completed. At this point, when he tasted that wine, it says, Then when Jesus therefore had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. All was completed, and he could cry out in victory. This was not a, a cry of desperation or resignation. This was a cry of victory. It is finished. It is finished. Salvation, in other words, salvation has been accomplished. When he said that, that's what he was saying. It's been, it's been taken care of. Salvation has been accomplished. The cup of God's wrath has been totally drained for all who would put their trust in him. <clears throat> now what took place in those three hours there in the darkness, we really don't understand. We can't comprehend what took place there. And we you just get a little feel for it by looking at uh, what... Uh, what he, has, what he says here on the cross, what the scriptures tell us, but we can't comprehend what was happening there. This we do know. When he said it is finished, we know this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no penalty for sin to be paid by the believer in Christ because he's drank the cup in full. It's finished. When that awful cup was empty, he could say, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. See, the wrath had, had been taken care of. The wrath of God against sin had been taken care of. And he could say, Father, it's finished. I've accomplished what I came to do. What you sent me to do, it's done. It's complete. And I commit my, into, into thy hands I commit my, my spirit. Because he drank the cup of God's wrath, we can now partake of the cup of blessing. And we're reminded of this every time we are involved in that simple act of drinking the juice during the communion time. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 10:16, "Is not the cup of is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ?" He calls it a cup of blessing. Because this is what God has for us now. The wrath's been taken care of. We have now the cup of blessing. <clears throat> it is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ. So in that simple ceremony, we are both looking back at what Christ has done by drinking the cup of wrath for us. And we're looking forward to fully partaking of the cup of blessing which will take place when he comes again. 
So let's look at that in, in uh, Matthew 26. It's looking back at the fact of the, the cup that was drank uh, of the wrath of God. It's looking forward at the full partaking of the cup of blessing that's yet to be ours. And you see this presented in Matthew 26, 27. This is when the Lord's Supper was instituted. Verse 27. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit, this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So a, there's a looking forward, you see, uh, in this, in verse 29. The fact is, we've barely tasted of the cup of blessing that is ours in Christ. The full cup of salvation yet lies in the future when we come to the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is what I think he's looking forward to when he says in verse uh, 29, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Um, so again, the full cup of salvation lies in the future at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Uh, Revelation 19 says, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. When Christ receives his bride, then he will drink again the cup of communion with his people. But this time, it will be the cup of full and everlasting blessing with all of his people. Every blood-bought saint from the beginning of, of time till the end uh, will be there. He will sit down at table with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Peter, Paul, James, and every Christian in this room and around the world. Not the cup of separation from God that was his at the crucifixion, but the cup of full and free fellowship with God and his people forever. That's what will be experienced at the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's the reality of what uh, we have yet to look forward to in this cup of salvation, this cup of blessing, fellowship with God forever. Um, let's turn to, well, I'll, I'll just read it to you. This is in Isaiah chapter 25. gives us a little picture of this time. Isaiah 25, verse uh, 6, says this. And the Lord of hosts will provide a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces of marrow, and refined and aged wine. And then verse 8. And he will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord God will wipe away tears, wipe tears away from all faces. And he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. And then verse 9. 
And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God for whom we have waited, that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. So that's just a picture of what that what it'll be like there. Uh, this cup of salvation, this cup of blessing, uh, that's ours in eternity. Well, in closing, it comes down to this. Either Christ drank the cup of God's wrath against sin for you, or you will drink it yourself someday. God has a righteous and holy anger against sin, and the only thing that will save us from having to drink the cup of his wrath is faith in Christ Jesus. So the question is, are you looking to Christ as the one who drank the cup for you, or are you going to drink it yourself? And the question I would ask is why why would anyone drink that cup themselves when Christ has said he has drunk drank that cup for everyone who would put their trust in him. You can have the cup of salvation, not the cup of God's wrath. Uh, the exhortation of the scripture is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So, just in closing, let me get my two cups out here again. Just as a way of fixing it on your mind. Christ drank the cup of wrath for everyone who would put their trust in him. And he gives them the cup of of salvation and blessing. So here they are, two cups before us here today, two cups. Let's turn back to where we started, Psalm 11. It says this, here's the one cup. Upon the wicked he will rain snares, fire and brimstone, and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. That's the one cup. Why would, you, why would you choose that cup when there's this other cup? Psalm 16, verse 5 and 6. The Lord is a portion of my inheritance and my cup. Thou dost support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. You cannot have any more beautiful heritage than what we've talked about today. This cup of blessing, this cup of salvation that will go on throughout eternity. My heritage is beautiful to me. That's if you take that other cup, the cup of salvation. So may God graciously grant that each one of us would drink freely of the cup of salvation, not the cup of his fierce wrath. It's, it's right there before each one of us today, two cups. Well, I thought we could close with this song, Man of Sorrows, what a name. <laughs> 